Welcome back to the Sensible Medicine Podcast. This is the podcast where we have a diverse group of experts brought together to discuss topical topics in the medical news. I'm joined by my friends and colleagues, Dr. John Mandrola, cardiologist, electrophysiologist from Louisville, Kentucky, and Tracy Beth Hogue, who is an epidemiologist, who is an expert sports medicine doctor. It is a pleasure to see you both. Great. Great to see you. Someday we'll coordinate that better and we'll know. You say, hello, hello. Okay, okay. Well, that's okay. That's okay. We're getting ready. We're getting into this. All right. We got two big topics today. Topic one, exercise. How much of it is beneficial, healthy? Can you have too much of a good thing? Second topic, we're going to get into sort of the revisionist history on the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's start with the first topic. This is a really interesting paper. And I wonder if maybe, John, you might kick it off and tell us, I mean, the one thing I want to know is, I don't know the difference between regular exercise and ultra exercise. So what's that distinction? And the second thing is, what did these researchers just find? Yeah, so this was presented at ACC, and I was actually at the, at the presentation. Um, this was a, a Belgian study. And of course, you know, cycling and endurance exercise is really big in Belgium. And what they did is they sent out like they sent out um, invitations through the through the media um, and got uh, endurance exercisers to respond to this. And and um, they did it had a little interesting technique is they they actually recruited like eleven hundred Belgians and they then randomized um, to get six hundred. So they wanted to try and avoid uh, selection bias people who would respond to the to the to the invitation because they were sick or something so anyways then they then they separated of course it's observational so they separated the groups into lifelong exercise endurance exercisers and they used a, a you know a mets category of per week and and again it the actual number is 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 hard to uh, pinpoint and then really the the other group was just regular um healthy people who exercised um, either not at all, or um, you know the normal AHA amount three hours per week. The control group was was interesting though because these controls, you know, they had no uh, cardiometabolic issues, they took no medicines, and they had a 22% higher VO2 max than than their age predicted maximum. So these were these were like specially healthy people. Belgians. And then. Yeah. And then what they did is they took these lifelong exercisers. It's been 30 years, I think, was like the average of, of, and most of it was cycling, but there were runners and triathletes mixed in. And then they were interested in, in the coronary atherosclerosis. So they then did imaging studies and a crap ton of high level imaging studies of their, of their coronaries. And so they, they looked at the coronaries of, of lifelong endurance exercisers and the coronaries of uh, these really super healthy controls. So Belgian people, but American testing. All right, and, and, and they claim that there is a J-shaped curve. In other words, it's not good not to exercise at all. It's good to do a little bit, but too much is actually bad and you have an increase in coronary atherosclerosis. Is that right, John? Yeah, but let's just, I think we should just, okay. just without going into too much of the details, okay. just like uh, go into some of the details. So they found that, you know, lifelong exercisers had more coronary calcium than these controls. And, and previous work has kind of suggested that. And that they found that <clears throat> lifelong exercisers had a higher percentage of bad plaques, like multiple plaques, plaques greater than 50% and plaques in the proximal coronaries. And then, you know, they looked at, they looked at like calcified versus non-calcified plaques. And then when they looked at non-calcified plaques, they found that lifelong exercisers had similarly, like not the best coronary uh, plaque uh, characteristics. And then they looked at the vulnerable plaques and it's above my pay grade exactly what a vulnerable plaque is, but they found that those were very low and, and in both groups. And so their, their conclusion was that compared to these healthy controls, lifelong exercisers didn't have these remarkable coronaries. So their coronaries looked it, it, probably worse or no better than that, which is which is interesting for two reasons. One, um, you, you, you would get the idea that like lifelong exercise is super healthy and it kind of could inoculate you against any coronary disease. And second, um, the other tension here is that when you look at other observational data, there's actually lower event rates in, 
in patients who, in people who exercise a ton. For instance, there's a very interesting study on Tour de France, retired Tour de France riders who have incredible survival, incredible survival and longevity. And so there's this tension between outcomes of, of endurance exercisers and these uh, coronary arteries. And so, okay, this is good. This is a good, they propose in their presentation and in their discussion that there may be this J reverse J curve where too little exercise is bad. Of course, sedentary is bad, but there's this Goldilocks amount of exercise. And then if you do too much, then uh, you might be doing harm. Mm-hmm. And that's the clay. That's what they that's want. Really, yes. uh, that's really uh, a problematic conclusion in, in my mind. Okay. And uh, that's what I, that's going to be the topic of discussion before we get to that, because I'm also going to take a big crap on this. Okay. Before we get to that, Tracy has read it carefully. Tracy, what do we else do we need to know? What do you see that's problematic in this paper? Yeah. So um, I'll I'll just say first of all, this is a study in European Heart Journal. I think you said that by Debosher. People are trying to look it up, Debosher at all. And um, so I, no, I nobody's say- trying to look it up. No, nobody reads anymore. Okay. Tracy. All no, right. Nobody reads. <laughs> Masters at heart. Masters at heart is the way to find it. Yeah. Okay. So I will. I, I just have to get it off my chest. Yes. The thing that bothers me the most about this study is it was all men, um, and and so I I knew when it, I saw it was a European study that that was going to be the case because why is that? There are very few women in Europe who are like big time endurance athletes, um, and and so I wonder. I first of all I wonder why they chose to do it that way. Um, but that this has been typical of a lot of European um, studies of athletes looking at heart issues. And I'm pretty sure that John knows this too, because the initial studies of atrial fibrillation among cross-country skiers were done in males and not females. And then when they finally did the studies to include the females, they didn't find the same relationship between Mm. the dose-response relationship between um, uh, like uh, amount of um, Vassal uh, um like cross country ski race. Oh, that's the so, word. Okay, yeah. And sorry, I was like, should I actually say it in Norwegian? But um, and and the amount of atrial fibrillation that they had. I see. So you're saying um, it, it was present for men, not for women. That's why it's very important to look women. at. Right. And so okay. I I was really curious when you sent this what the relationship was going to be for women and men and then i saw oh it's only men okay um can, can i just stop and ask one yeah. quick question what makes someone and like where is the amount of a- athleticism become elite like what are we talking about are we talking about a jog twice a week three times a week 50 miles a week a thousand miles a week you know 100 miles a week you know what are we talking about what makes you elite that's what i want to put a finger on Right. So, um, I mean, the way that they let, let me just see this. So the way that they did it in this study, I mean, like John said, the, they, they were really comparing people to, to not exercise, who did not exercise more than three hours a week. So this, this was like, um, John, do you remember the amount that you had to exercise a week to be included? Yeah. Um, this was not um these were not necessarily elite athletes who who um who you know competed in big races but um yeah so this was i have the paper pulled up here athletes were defined as uh, in cycling greater than eight hours or running greater than six hours per week um uh, for at least six months prior to baseline lifelong started regular endurance training at less than age 30 and um, and then they they also had a category in there of late onset exercisers that began at, after age thirty. But we're not talking about people who do a peloton three times a week at thirty <laughs> or forty five minutes. We're yeah. talking about people who go for three to four hour bike rides on the weekend, who ride an hour or two every day, or 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 run like Tracy runs. I mean, we're talking about the three of us, actually, ironically. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I would consider myself a lifelong endurance athlete, but not elite, which is my friends would laugh. Definitely not elite, but lifelong. Okay, Tracy, back to you. Phil, so, round yeah. out your thoughts. Yeah. So, um, so, so I just want to say that again, this, this, okay, this is an observational study, right? So I think John's point is very important that these controls, um, the non-exercisers, are very different than usual non-exercisers, at least I would think in the United States, because none of them had hypertension. None of them were obese. They were sort of like a little bit over the middle of overweight. They couldn't be higher than that. They had to be lower than that. They couldn't have um, 
uh, hyperlipidemia. They couldn't have diabetes. So already, uh, you know, you're you're comparing athletes to a very select group of non-athletes. So I think that that's an issue. And in the study, they were using sort of causal language, like implying that it was the exercise that was the risk factor that led to the coronary artery disease. Whereas we don't really know, it might have been something else. It might've been that these people who were non-exercisers um, had higher socioeconomic status, didn't work as much, slept better, right. did all sorts of other things that might be beneficial to their health. So this was like, you know, all of these confounders that we see in observational studies that we've been discussing with COVID, like this is the same issue that we're seeing with this study that we're looking at two like very different groups of people. And even among the athletes, they had a higher um, history of coronary artery disease or cardiovascular disease in their family, even though it wasn't significant, it was like the point estimate was higher. And then um, I just want to point out that we, we have like this long <laughs> history of literature finding an association between like a dose response curve actually between exercise and then um, decreased um, all cause mortality and decreased cardiovascular mortality, decreased mortality from cancer. So it's like, again, we don't know cause and effect, but when you look at, you know, how often people die, we actually, um, who are athletes and what the association is, we have a long history in the medical literature finding like a beneficial association of regular exercise with mortality and cardiovascular mortality. So we were talking about they're only they're looking at plaques, right? So what does the the fact that you have like a coronary artery plaque or a specific, or calcification or a certain type of plaque like what does that actually mean for your risk of having an event or your risk of dying? Um, you know, so we have all these studies where we have an endpoint that is like not meaningful to the patient. Like it's, it's a surrogate a, endpoint. It's a surrogate endpoint. Yeah, yeah. Like you always say. Uh, what Adam Sifu says about yeah. it. it's like the patient doesn't care about it until the doctor tells them they Correct. care about it. <laughs> and I just want to make another point, which is that there's a vast literature on the risk of different coronary artery plaque and calcification, huge literature. The bulk of that literature is not derived from ultra extreme athletes. And so the exact same lesion may have a slightly different prognostic significance in a different group of people. You just don't know. Okay, here are some thoughts on this whole space. I have to say, this is all, no, pardon my French, this is all shit. I mean, I think the study is shitty. Uh, I don't draw many conclusions from it. Um, and I think we've forgotten what we're really trying to get at, which is people are reading this literature and they are trying to figure out how much exercise should I do? I think that's the question, right? That's the question. That's, that's why this is in the news. That's why people are interested in this so much. How much should I do? And then the question is, why you exercise? And I think we all acknowledge one reason to exercise is, well, I want to improve my longevity. The other is I want to improve my physical function. Like even if I won't live longer, I want to live stronger. I want to be able to, you know, walk to the mailbox until the day I die, you know, that sort of thing. A third reason is the sheer pleasure of exercise itself in the moment. I think we have forgotten that many people who exercise a lot are doing it for the, the pleasure of the moment. I go on three-hour bike rides on the weekends. Um, not as much as I used to, but I still do it frequently. I'm not thinking about the second two things. I'm thinking about the pleasure of the moment. Um, okay, so with that background, I think one thing the three of us probably all agree on, and tell me if it's true, we all agree that you would advise somebody who's sedentary to do a little exercise each week. I mean, fair to say? 100%. Totally agree. The next thing we might all agree on is if somebody tells you they run 200 miles a week or 150 miles a week, you would say, that's awesome. You know, you do you. If you love it, you love it. But if, you, if you're doing it and you're saying, I'm doing this because I want to live forever, you'd say, like, you know, you probably, you probably could get away with doing a lot less. If your only goal is longevity, you know, I'm not sure you need to push it to two hundos a week. Fair to say we all agree on that? Yeah, sort of just an intuition. Okay. Now, the reason these things really bother me is that I really think that, and I just want to pick your brain on it, among the people you know, who are truly this kind of person from the age of 22 or 18 or 27, they have been biking, you know, hundreds of miles a week and running like this. If you told them these results, are they going to change their behavior? What do you think, John? 100% no. 100% no. 100% no. Well, maybe not yeah. 100%, but 99% yeah. no. Okay, here's... Yeah, go on. Here's what, here's what I wrote. I wrote a column on this on the heart.org and... and 
one of the things is that is I'm biased, right? Because this is I like this, and I, I I'm like the gerbil who needs to run on that wheel. You know, I just have to run on a wheel, even if there's nothing in front of me, I got to run on it. But I've been on rides at 5 a.m. You know, racing up hills. I've been on credit uh, criteriums where we're racing for a twenty-five dollar check, like it was, you know, like it was a Tour de France. And I talk to these people, and none of them think this is healthy or they're doing it for health. Okay. I mean, getting up at five a.m. and riding forty miles and beating yourself into the ground and riding hundred miles on the week and you know training for a marathon. Now, maybe if you run like Tracy, okay, but if you run like a normal person marathons i don't see anything healthy of it from it if 50s had not died no one would care about a marathon they run <laughs> 10ks so i don't think i don't think that like people who do this do it for health at least the vast majority so and um, I, I i think that's true i just also want to add i don't believe it's deleterious i mean i'm not persuaded that it's deleterious for health i don't believe the conclusion Okay. Well, oh, right. yeah. I don't either, but 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 I will tell you from uh, this is off the topic, but I'll tell you just from the arrhythmia clinic, and and um, I do see people who are just beating themselves down into overtraining and 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 these inflammatory states, and I think the observational evidence for arrhythmias in AFib is much stronger than for coronary atherosclerosis, and so I do think that in certain individuals. You, 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 you can do too much or not rest enough. And I, 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 I do think that is true. Whether that has any long-term longevity consequences, I don't know. Tracy, you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I see kind of two different types of patients. And one of those types is when it comes to exercise. And one of them is like the type where they, they don't want to exercise, right? They'll use any excuse not to exercise. And they read these studies and they're like, oh, coronary artery disease or the like, oh, AFib or and, oh, and, and my to, knee, yes. knee osteoarthritis, like, you know, and then they're like, what's, what's even the point? Why would I do it? It's dangerous. Right. And so then it's like, I'm sort of like talking them down from these studies and saying, you know, there are many health benefits to exercising and like, we don't have randomized studies and it's not just <clears throat> physical health, but it is, it's physical health. It's mental health. I mean, and um, just getting outside, just, you know, there, there are many, um, you know, and not just that, the camaraderie of like sports and there are many aspects of like health that come with sports participation, but, but like, you know, I, I worry most about those patients that just do not want to exercise and they, it, and it's, it's not just that, you know, you decrease your blood pressure and you lose weight, um, you know, but, um, but you're stronger. And, you know, I see a lot of patients who have difficulty, just like when I said, like maybe walking to the mailbox or doing like your activities of daily living and the stronger you are and the more you exercise, like, you know, the, the longer you can, you know, on average postpone your, your time to getting to that point where you have trouble, like getting around and doing your activities of daily living. And so, you know, I worry that if patients don't like develop the right habits when they're younger, that they're going to age more quickly. Um, and some I mean, of it yeah. is frailty, right. You know, it's not just the heart. It's sort of like the whole picture, um, you know, and, and to be clear, like the problem, the problem in America is not that there are too many ultra athletes. It's that we're sedentary of obesity crisis. That's the problem. So, right. You're right. So for every person you're dissuading from exercise, that's the problem. But you know, my overall thoughts on this issue, I should have spelled it out. I mean, this study I think is very low value one, because it has a huge conditioning problem. Like the people are being self-selected. Even if you randomly sample from the self-selection, you still have the self-selection. The second, all the endpoints they're looking at are surrogate endpoints, which are dubious. And we have this huge selection filter on the front end. So we really don't know if this is a causal relationship at all. I mean, that's easy. It's, uh, you know, low credibility. It doesn't tell me anything. Um, and the types of people who are ultra athletes are different in many other ways, as Tracy pointed out. Okay, so, so this, yeah. Go so on. Tracy, wait, I, you, you said there's two types of patients. The first oh, the is second the ones that don't exercise. Yeah. What was the, what, what's your experience with, the, with, the, with these others? Because I have, so I have, I, I have I, experience. I do think that a lot of them are doing it for health. I kind of disagree with you on that. You mean um, the ultra people? Yeah, I mean, I do see a lot of ultra runners. I think they take their health very seriously. Okay, and, uh, yes, I think that's true. But are they doing it for health? Go on, finish your point. Sorry. 
I think it's a, I think it's a combination. I don't want to, you know, say that, you know, the same thing applies to everyone, but I, I definitely find like that, uh, that the, of the ultra marathon runners that I see, and I see a number of them, like their participation in ultra marathon sports is like a, a, a piece of their whole effort to being like very fit and a health and a healthy person. And so I think, you know, um, that a lot of ultra athletes will acknowledge that they don't need to do that much to get the health benefits. And so there's sort of this extra, like that you want to be competitive. Um, and, uh, you know, that's definitely the way I used to be. And, you know, when I was like super competitive in ultra marathon running and long distance running, I, I did not think it was unhealthy. I mean, um, but I didn't think that I needed to do that much for it right. to be healthy. And I think there's a little bit of like speculation that just because you're running over a hundred miles a week, that that's necessarily unhealthy. Like I haven't really seen. Correct. That's what I want to say too. Yeah. That. Go on. Um, I think the only thing I know for sure is it's better to do some than none. Yeah. Yeah. And I okay. think a, a lot of it is just sort of finding something that you enjoy doing. I think there's many health benefits in that. And I do think a lot of like um ultra endurance athletes do it for mental health reasons of course too. which uh, is which is the euphoria that comes from it yeah yeah i mean exactly and and not just that but just sort of like um you know like just feeling more balanced mentally i think that i've noticed that a lot like where at, uh, ultra endurance athletes tend to maybe be the type of people who are prone to addiction or something like that and then they find like okay well if i participate yes. in this sport like that's a way better, a healthier activity for me to get involved in, you know, than like. And 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 the reason they're doing so much is involved, it's know? it's an addictive personality feature to just keep doing more of it. So I think I have two principles: one, better to do some than none, and the second is obviously, like everything in life, there has to be some diminishing return. So going from thirty miles a week to eighty miles a week to two hundred, I doubt you're getting much. But again, I think the the, the one point I want to make is that um, many people are interested in this question. And medicine has almost no answers. We have just totally failed. We have no answers. We never even tried. We never studied. We never do randomized studies. We just waste our time with retrospective garbage like this uh, or cross-sectional garbage like this. We've never even tried to answer. We've just totally failed you. All we can say is, hey, you know, get off the couch and do something. And, you know, that's about all I know. Okay. John? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, uh, two quick comments and we'll move on. But I, I appreciate your saying that, Tracy, because your experience – in California with ultra marathoners may be different than my experience with bike racers in, in the Midwest. And, and, and so it might just be that we're, we're seeing, we're seeing different populations. So, so that's good. But I, I think the other point, Vinay, that, that to yours is that, you know, we have headlines that say endurance exercise tied to more coronary atherosclerosis. And I think that the mistake we make, which may be a segue into the next topic is to make these outsized conclusions from really uh, uh, a flawed observational data that's that's not worth lists um, but it's certainly not uh, certainly certainly not something that we should make these kinds of uh, conclusions from yeah that's well put and the irony is that if we actually came on this show and we spent like four hours talking about ATP production and vo2 and all this we'd be much more popular I mean, it's mind numbing. It's it, mind numbing. But but there's a whole industry because I, I just this is my last point. Um, the people who consume podcasts about exercise are not the average Joe. They tend to be rich, well-educated people who have the luxury of time. So we can spend our time, you know, pontificating about, oh, should I go for that extra run or, you know, biohack my life and drink smoothies and all this bullshit that's very popular where I live. Um, and, you know, we rely on low levels of evidence. We're already rich and privileged anyway, so we're probably going to do fine no matter what. And then we spend our time and there's a huge industry of people who are happy to sell you a supplement in the advertisement while they talk to you about why 20 miles is the right distance, not 40 miles. And then you'll see all these tech bros tweet, I've gone down to 20 mile bike rides because of a great podcast on whatever it's ridiculous it's nobody knows anything other than don't be overweight <laughs> you know do some exercise and the other thing about life is if you enjoy it do it what the hell you want me to tell you know you enjoy it i enjoy the 100 mile bike ride there's something i like about it you know is it addictive personality is it competitiveness probably to some degree but it's also just being out there in the trees and in the woods and the trail you know that's beautiful too the the, the, the truth is Vinay and tracy that 
I've been doing bike racing for 25 years and I have tried every pill supplement, uh, altitude training. Oh, and, okay. <laughs> and, and everything you could try and you, the results of the race are always the same every year. Like the top guys always win. The top women always win. And, and, you know, you, it just is what it is. And so all of these things are, I totally agree with you. I, 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 I barely have a computer on my bike because it doesn't help. It's just by feel. Tracy, last word on this, and then we go yeah, to another topic. No, I, I, I found one thing that really, really did help. Uh, it wasn't a randomized study. I'm sorry. I don't. I can't quote. That's it. Tell okay. Us, tell tell us. me. I'm curious. It was running multiple marathons and running even 13 to 16 miles a day when I was pregnant. Oh, um, God. And you guys think i'm crazy i think you're hardcore uh, hardcore i will tell you guys that um after i had my second child i could not believe the performance increase that i had and there's so much literature to back this up um because i don't you you end up having a higher vo2 max after you train like while you're pregnant and then there's just the, the the growth hormone and the change in your hormones while you're exercising while you're pregnant that it's sort of like this unique opportunity um and so that's the one thing i've come across that really made a difference so um, that's really that's well put uh but um, it's hard to replicate okay i do i have yeah. to ask you this Benai, because it's i've been wanting to ask you this forever um how a randomized study of exercise. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So like how long? Like we're talking about these people who exercise for like years. Yeah. You can't, you can't do this study. No. Yeah, you can. I think, <laughs> I think, yeah, same with alcohol. Same with, I mean, we did have an NIH study about alcohol, but here's the thing. Here's how you do it. I have a post written about alcohol. One, you have to, I mean, this is my philosophical, philosophical principles. Then we move to the other topic real quick. Okay. One. I think we all have this idea you're going to randomize people to exercise, no exercise. That's not how it can possibly work. I mean, everybody is entering this study with some baseline. Tracy runs 12 miles a w- or 20 miles a week. I run 10 miles a week. John runs 30 miles. I mean, I don't know what it is, you know, something like that. So you take people, you know, depending on what baseline you are and knowing that people will be different, you get a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people. So that you're going to get some people at 10, some at 20. 10. Then you start to have many arms of the randomization. You randomize people like me and you say, VP, whatever you do, Add 20%. You randomize you to the arm, Tracy. Whatever you do, subtract 20%. John, more extreme, 50%, 70%, up or down, whatever. You know, we give you some advice. And then we follow people for years. And the real question is this. What are we testing? We're not testing exercise because to some degree, that's not the question. The question is we're testing what should you advise someone in the world? Should you advise him to crank it up a notch or crank it down a notch? And that's what people want. They want to know what you should advise them. And I think no matter, even with attrition, even with, you know, if, first of all, if, if nobody complies, that already answers the question. Save your breath. You should never advise anyone because no one's going to change what they do. Okay, so that's the answer to the question. But if everyone does comply and in one direction they have improvements and health outcomes, and then what are the outcomes I'd look at? I'd look at longevity, because you could do it in 65-year-olds and, you know, you will get, you could look at um, Look Ahead, which is a type 2 diabetes study by the NIH, ran 120. Okay, you, you could get some signal. You could look at morbidity, osteoporotic fractures, falls. You could look at all the, okay, anyway. We'll save that for another time because I want to talk so about that. So you're the, randomizing yeah. advice, not exercise. So Correct, but. different. <laughs> no, no, oh, but, but, but I think that that's what we're doing here because this news story is not, ran, is not, is not, it's not exercise. It's. It's how you tell somebody about exercise. It's an advice. The podcast we're talking about, it's not changing what you do. It's advice. You should do more, should do less. In this business of health medicine, we are, even public health, it's mostly advice, except for the mandates, which, you know, you could randomize to mandate, no mandate, and see it blow up in your face. Um, but most of what we do is advice, and, and advice is what people crave. Um, and I think the advice, my, my gut is that, Getting people to move from nothing to something will have some positive benefit, but everything else is just, you know, not going to do much. But anyway, that's my, that's my null, but, you know, we'll see. But NIH could pay for it. Okay, anyway. All right, next topic. Uh, next topic. It's a good question. Um, and people who are interested, they can read my thing on alcohol because I kind of flesh it out more. How do you advise somebody to drink or not drink? I kind of have a post on that. Okay, next topic. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give my intro and then we'll have John take it take it because he wanted to frame it in a certain way. But the way I would frame it is this. Um, if you read all the randomized controlled trials of masking pre-pandemic, there's no question in my mind. The answer was 
It doesn't work. Community mask advice does not work. Cloth masks don't work. We have a cluster randomized trial by McIntyre that showed that the advice was not to do it. The CDC came forward in March, early March. They said, don't do it. WHO said, don't do it. You know, it was universally accepted. Don't do it. Fauci goes on 60 Minutes. He says, don't do it. That's because they're all telling you what they believe. Then in the first three weeks of March, there was a vigorous push for hashtag masks for all run by a computer scientist. And this, I, I, don't, I'm, I might mispronounce her name. Apologies. No, nothing meant by it. Zeynep Tufeki, um, who is a computer scientist, she wrote an op-ed and she says why we should mask. Um, what she didn't say was why we should do a randomized trial of masking, which would have been the smart thing to do. She just pushed it. Uh, the CDC saw that op-ed. They've released some internal communication that said that's why they changed the recommendation by April to recommend masking. She has taken credit for that. And that was in 2020 when mask popularity was through the roof. As the years go on, we've got at least two randomized efforts during COVID, Bangladesh, which has a concealment bias issue and is practically negative, and Dan Mask, which is negative. And then we've got Guinea-Bissau, which is not that useful. Um, and then we still have all the pre-existing studies. We've got some studies in, in uh, healthcare populations, which is a good study that showed N95 is not better than uh, surgical mask. Uh, Non-inferiority margin was large, but actually I think it's reasonable. I defended that elsewhere. Okay. Now the consensus is, well, community mask mandates don't work and surgical masks don't work and cloth masks don't work. But if you wore an N95 mask, like that would work. So we have totally backtracked on the position from advising people you ought to wear a cloth mask or you're a MAGA, MAGA idiot. You know, that was, the, that was the January, that was the March 2020 advice. Now the position is, well, yeah, mask mandates don't work and they probably didn't work in two-year-olds because we took it off for naps. Uh, but if you could still wear a high-quality mask. Uh, it's a huge retreat. And my opinion, then I'll give it to you, John. The same people now are, are, who, who told me all that bullshit about how sure they were that it works, ignoring all of the randomized data, actively subverting us who wanted to do randomized trials. They sabotaged those studies. They sabotaged it. They made it hard to get a peer review article through that purported, that wanted to do randomized studies of masking. They attacked anybody who said you shouldn't mask kids, viciously attacked. Okay, those same people, now they come to, oh, well, Cochrane's inconclusive. We should have run randomized studies. And I'm like, go fuck yourself. I'm sorry. Go fuck yourself. You were wrong then. You're wrong now. You just don't want to admit it. And you, you are the reason we didn't do the studies. Okay, so it's a revisionist history. My point is we were, oh, well, at least Tracy and I were the most outspoken. We were right. They were wrong. Uh, okay, John, how do you view it? And I'm a harsh man, so forgive me. Well, I do think... Uh, it, it's a hot topic and I, and it's politicized, but I, I do want to like elevate to the grander concepts of, of how we know things and, and how we can learn from history. So I was just a couple of days ago at the UCSD and talking about this sort of view that I have about medicine, this medically conservative view of, of slow adoption of, of progress. And and, and some of the points that I made and some of the reasons why I've come to this sort of conservative, not politically conservative, but, but just conservative approach to, to things is because of all of the things that we've been fooled about with, um, okay, with, with believing marketing studies, with uh, uh, really lousy endpoints, with not considering multimorbidity. And, and the big one, I come back to this again and again, is leaning too much on observations like for instance the 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 anecdotal study about the hairdresser um, uh, study uh, the hairdresser anecdote and so when i started cardiology you guys i we we had these premature beats at patients who had heart attacks and it was a certain thing that it, these things were bad that was true observational studies and that we had drugs to suppress them and so you could not, it was just like masks. You could not, maybe not just like masks, but you could not question the, the therapeutic fashion of treating these PVCs. It, this was the right thing to do and to, to, to not do it was, was, was terrible. <laughs> and then finally, finally, when people got the guts to randomize to placebo or, or drugs that suppress the PVCs, we found out for a decade, our treatment was killing people. The number needed to kill in the CAST trial was 29. For every 29 patients we treated the way the experts said, we killed patients. It was the same with hormone replacement therapy. Um, digoxin has been maligned by the same way. And so I'm more interested in looking back at some of these things that we now accept 
um, and, and, and understanding why we came to these conclusions and why we believe these observational anecdotal studies. And, and to me, that's the grander message is, is how we know things. Well, that's the topic of the book Ending Medical Reversal, because <laughs> I agree with you, which is that was what we set out to do, which was we have flip-flops in medicine. Why do we have flip-flops? Because we adopt something based on low credibility evidence. Why do we do that? Because we want to believe, we have financial incentive to believe, and when we're scared and desperate and dying, we will, you know, a dying, a drowning man will grab for the blade of a sword, you know, that saying. And, and so that's why we do things in times of crisis. Now, the rational part of the brain should be there and say, okay, it's okay. You know, you're scared. You want to do something. That's okay. But like, let's do some data collection. Let's do some randomization. So in the next six months, we'll answer this. And so I wasn't opposed to masks in 2020, um, but I was opposed to three years of endless masking with no po- zero positive studies that have anything to do with like the USA. That rural Bangladesh study excluded cities in Bangladesh. It didn't even go to the cities. And, and it also has a lot of problems, which we could talk about. Tracy? Thoughts yeah. on this? I agree with John. That's the broader philosophical question. We'll talk Definitely. more about that. I mean, this is really relevant to what I, I've been doing actually a little bit this last week. I mentioned <laughs> this to you guys because I've, I've, I have been um, an expert witness in this case against the Calvary Chapel, who is, has like $2.9 million in fines um, for... It, it was initially for them opening early, but then like the most recent fines have really been mostly about them not adhering to mask mandates. So where is, is this chapel? This is Santa Clara County. And this is oh. David Zweig, oh. his article, what he wrote about the church. Um, and so basically as part of my testimony, I had to go back and think about how I was looking at the mask data from the very beginning, because this was a question to get to what you're talking about, John, of how do we know what we know? Um, and, and what did we know at the beginning of the pandemic? And I, I didn't know you guys, but it's interesting because I had this sort of same, I had the same philosophy from really reading the medical literature of like, you know, we, we don't really know until we have very good high quality data or randomized study to show us that this is actually, this actually works. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, um, over the summer, you know, it was really midsummer that we started saying 2020 that that masks work. And so I, I immediately started looking at these studies that were coming out and noticing they're like mostly modeling studies. And I said, wait, what are these models? What are they based on? What study? And so I'm like writing to the authors of the studies and like, what are you, you know, trying to see what what they're basing it on? But there is no, there, there was no randomized data that showed that masks work. And so even even now in Zynep's article, she's going back and she's saying like the randomized study from Germany with high compliance, it showed it worked if you masked early. But if you look at their pre-specified endpoint, the mask didn't work. And she's talking about like this um, per protocol, like when they post hoc yeah. people who only masked like in the first 18 hours and that's like but you lost the randomization this isn't a randomized study anymore can can we just say that one more time which people don't this is true for colonoscopy it's true for this you run a randomized study because you're equilibrating outcome distributions in the absence of therapeutic effect if you only look at people who did it one way or not the other those are not random those are people who have certain covariance yeah they're different people right so it's (laughs) not it's not a randomized study anymore all right thank you suddenly it's an observational study once it's per protocol right correct and so that's i mean you know has been the big picture is that journalists like Zynep, I know that, you know, she says she's a scientist. I don't want to say she's not a scientist, but what she's not, what she's doing is not scientific because she's filling in the gaps in our knowledge with things that she's like assuming or like making up or, you know, she's filling in the gaps with like bad data. With, with supposition. And so that's what we've been. But but one thing I'll, de- I'll defend so her on. Seeing from the beginning. Yeah. W- one thing we have to point out is that you could take an MD, PhD epidemiologist and they'll agree with every word she said. So I don't think it has to do with her background or skill set because there's a no, lot of people, think- MD, PhD epidemiologists who don't know how to interpret data too. I mean, they're not good at it either in my opinion. Um, oh, okay, totally. but, tra- I, but tra- it's just it's unscientific and I'm not saying anything personal about her. You know, a scientist will look at that and say, what don't we know? And what do we have really good data to support? 
And so what is a scientist doesn't look at 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 like uncertain data and then fill it in with like observational. Well, I, there are a lot of scientists who do. So, like, they're just not scientists, right? OK, the scientific process. Correct. I agree with you. The problem is there's only like 10 of us true scientists. But we, let me. But we've had a lot of journalists do that. But we were also inundated with articles and observational studies from the CDC. Propaganda. Publication by Propaganda. From journals, yes, saying masks work. And it's like, I look back at the old studies and even like studies that were about predominant airborne spread of SARS-CoV-2, they're like, this is why we should mask in the conclusion. And it's like, what? Where did you get that conclusion? John? So yeah. You know, no, like, that's, that's well said. Well said. Come back to this. So, so one of the one of the other topics of one of the other topics of ways of knowing is that, and and I think this has been published is that randomized controlled trials are not very good at looking at harms. So they're 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 good at looking at benefits, and and we we look at benefits, but but we 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 don't really look well at harms. And so here's what I'm thinking, um, and I, and I'm not a public health person. I'm just thinking, but if if you're interested in the public's health, then you, you need trust. You need trust. You need, you need your recommendations to be trustworthy and you need the public, the public to under, to, you know, to, to go with you. And so uh, here's what I'm thinking. When I pick up my grandkids and they're asleep on the cot and they don't have a mask on, but they're breathing on each other. I'm thinking to myself, okay, if that's the policy, it's so bad and so dumb and so nonsensical Then, then I start thinking if I was a doctor and I was recommending such nonsensical things, would patients believe me about exercise and about taking their statin or their blood pressure pill? They'd say, this guy's a goofball. And so I think there's a cost in having goofball policies. And, and this is the thing that when I went to Denmark and, 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 I, and when I met them and they said, they said, we trust our public health people. And if you're interested in the public's health, then you need to build trust. And so this is the thing that this is the thing that really got me is that we didn't really consider the off-target harms. And I think one of them is mistrust. John, that's a great example. I think you're absolutely right. What are the things people mistrust us for? You taped up. You taped up the playgrounds. There was a there's a professor at your university standing on the beach screaming at people surfing that they're going to get COVID. You you took the rims off the basketball hoops. You in in this in San Francisco, they tried the second time in like a fall lockdown of 2020 to close the parks. And then they did it for one day and then they undid it because like there's so much pushback from the community because it was just overwhelmingly stupid. You the policy was make the kids mask two to four, except for when they nap all in the same room with stagnant air for two hours. Um, and that the, that was one that I thought like I, 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 I I'm going to take credit for that because I was the one who observed that. And I put that and I said, this is like a trump card. It's going to get everyone to change their mind. And then I wrote those articles in the Atlantic and stuff. And I was really pushing in that year for this stupid policy to end. And I kept playing that card. And I will tell you, the people pushed back so hard. Oh, no. You know, what do you know? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, what do I know? I'm not a moron. That's what I, I mean. Like, only an idiot would think it would work. And that is the position of the American Academy of Pediatrics. What am I to think? What am I to think, John, that that is their position? There's not anybody in the AAP who says, guys, before we start making these toddlers mask, maybe we should like make sure they don't chew it. And then the second thing is maybe we got to solve this map, this this nap issue because we're going to look like idiots. Nobody said that. And now in the Zeynep piece, she cites that as an example of excessive policy that she never advocated for. But I didn't hear her advocate against masking two to four year olds, which is an extreme you know, it's an extreme by European standards. It's an extreme by common sense. My friend from Europe says, he always says, you don't even need to go to college to know that's, that's not a good idea. You just need to use your eyes and you know it's like not good. Um, okay, I just want to bring it back to John's thing. To me, the masking question was the ending medical reversal story. You know, I, I, I have been in this sandbox for 10 years, always curious about like, why do we adopt things on low credibility evidence that blow up in our faces? And I watched it play out in front of my eyes. And I tried to tell people like, hey, let's run some randomized trials. And then they attacked me. It was a parachute. You know, it's unethical to run the random. Those are always, you know, those are wrong. Um, and now we're left with no data. And the last thing I want to say, and then I'll get let you talk, Tracy. It doesn't even make sense anymore. Okay. Like, even if you believed in it, 
the relative risk reduction has got to be 5 to 10%. I mean, nobody can possibly believe masking's like 95% reduction. It's not that good. Okay, like if you, if you advise people to wear a mask versus not, it's going to be like 5% delta at best, like something modest like that. So if you do that before a vaccine, maybe you'll punt another 20K people to get COVID on the backside of a vaccine. And then you're like, okay, that's good, man. 20K people got it after vax rather than before vax. Totally. Like we save some lives. IFR is different. It's a different business. But if you go in 2023 and you make people wear a mask and get it in 2023 October rather than August, and this is like best case scenario. And by the way, I don't even believe it does this, but best case, what, what would be the point of that? You know, what is the point? And that is something that I sometimes get, you know, people write back to my column and they're like, oh, well, you know, my loved one is immunosuppressed or what about that? And I'm like, I hate to tell you the harsh reality, which is that anybody who's going to spend 20 years on this planet, immunosuppressed or healthy, is going to get COVID-19 more than once. And that is a reality. And then the question is, how much do you want to ruin your life when you get it twice, when you're going to get it anyway? And that's the question you face. And the answer is you should do exactly what you did in 2017, which is, all the immunocompromised people, we just live with it. That's life. I mean, that's, I mean, sorry, but that is life. You, we're all going to get respiratory viruses. They cannot be stopped. They live because we're human beings and we have to be close to be human. All right, Tracy. Sorry. I, it's my, this is my pet issue. <laughs> like, no, but I, 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 I agree with you, John, that like, I, I think that we, you know, it's, it's, it's the children and it's in healthcare settings now that we're masking. And it's like, it's actually, it's at the point of absurdity now, right? And Europe, I mean, we can compare ourselves to them where they have much higher trust in public health, as we've discussed before. But it was like over a year ago that, that Denmark, I know, stopped masking in the healthcare setting. And of course, they never mask kids. And so, you know, all along, they've been saying, well, we don't really have that good of a data that masking helps that much. And they did it for a while, you know, in public transportation and things like that, and kids over 12 in school, but now it's gone. And so now it's like, I, I do experience, you know, with my patients that they, they think it's so like it, it's not congruent with the rest of their life that now they come to the doctor and they have to like mask up and they're like, well, what, why? And so, you know, it doesn't, they know that it doesn't make sense. And so people are associating going to the doctor with things that don't make sense, things that make them uncomfortable, this feeling that they cannot communicate with people, this, you know, this feeling like they're not being heard. And I think I, this gets to the other problem that I want to bring up, which is that like physicians and scientists who have been speaking out about this have just gotten in trouble like over and over and over again we just get punished for saying like we don't have the data to do this we there are you know likely harms of doing this like we can see the harms with our own eyes from doing it with our communication with our patients and um you know kids not being able to hear each other like we've been bringing this up all along and we just you know get punished for doing it and it's so like I'm looking back now and 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 thinking about, you know, how much, um, you know, criticism I got for, you know, saying kids shouldn't mask in spring of 2021. And I know when I was saying that, too, and I'm like, but we were right. And so many other people probably thought that at the same time, but they couldn't say anything because they would have gotten in trouble. And, you know, it's just this theme that keeps coming up. And now to get back to that, that cold court case I've been involved in in Santa Clara, it's like, this little church, they have to pay $2.9 million in fines for doing something that never actually worked in the first place, as far as we know from the data. <laughs> and so it's like, we're, it's like, it's, it's, it is absurd at this point. And people have been very hurt by, you know, the fact that people have jumped to conclusions about data and about how well things work before we even had the data to say they did. And, you know, I, I mentioned to you guys earlier how you had had argued for medical conservatism and i think that we need that in like public health too like we need don't tell them that they're gonna scoop they're gonna scoop our article tracy they're gonna scoop our article (laughs) but but i think tracy though i think it gets back to trust and and i i i know that i know that the public public health experts might push back about me trying to make analogies between what we do with individual patients and what we do with public but for instance, like Victor Montori at Mayo Clinic has written about minimally disruptive medicine. And, and I wonder whether minimally disruptive public health, imagine the counterfactual world in which people thought about this and just said, well, 
we're, we're, we're not going to we're not going to we're not going to mask kids. Um, it, we these things might have relative benefit, but go ahead. Uh, imagine a counterfactual world in, in vaccines where we didn't force vaccines in the healthiest populations, young young uh, right. college kids. And they said, well, for them, we're not sure. It's up to you. You can do it. But we really think we ought to do these higher risk people. And I and I, I just we do this in clinic when we have a patient with diabetes and and, and they can't afford their medicines. We have to pick we, we can't give them six. We have to pick the top two. And so we we practice sort of this minimally disruptive uh, approach. And I, I wonder whether one of the things we could learn from this experience is a more minimally disruptive approach to to public health and it's just an idea and i'm just no it's brilliant it's brilliant and you know who did that denmark i mean you're describing the european strategy and it's brilliant in many ways i mean one is like exactly as you say you only have so much credibility and power and you have to use it wisely and if all that you know in this country we bungled so many things we prioritized the resident the intern in the residency class over the 80 year old uh who is in the community that is a very bad decision. The risk to the 80-year-old is, you know, is, is maybe 100-fold or 1,000-fold higher than this person because their odds ratio is only two that they're going to get it. You know, where, okay, so we're making, all the, normal, right. we're making all these bad choices, robbing us of credibility. We abuse the, the mandate stick in the population's least at risk. To this date, the people who are most mandated are college men who have the least to gain and the most to lose from perpetual dosing. Um, we, and here's the thing that the public health people... You know, because I've talked to some people who I'm close to and they say like, oh, you know, the thing I disagree with you is that in public health, you have to act, have to act. You can't not act and you have to do what's best for everybody. You can't just think about individual rights and freedom. You have to do what's best. And I say, look, okay, I say, I just say, okay, let's just concede your premise. You have to act and you have to think about everyone. Okay, let's just concede that. How do you explain zero randomized trials in the U.S. on masking? Why is zero the right number? And the answer is they can never defend zero. No rational person can defend doing it for years and never studying it. You have to be dropped on your head to have a policy of just doing it, yelling at people, calling them like idiots for not doing it, and never studying it. That was the policy. And the person who pushed it is the same person who controls the funding. Okay, this I get worked up. I mean, Fauci, he controls $5 billion of federal funding for randomized studies in infectious disease, and he's the one who flip-flopped and is saying this. He should run the study. Walensky should run the study. She is in front of Congress as of three weeks ago. She is lying. She says there's no equipoise. That is a lie. How are we allowing someone to like uh, lie to the public that there's no equipoise? And that is why people are so angry at us because these people are lying so hard that it, we know so confidently it works. So when Tracy and I write our article, we get so much vitriol because they they believe these people. And why do they believe them? Because they have better titles than we do, to be fair. And to some degree, belief, it, like, why do people believe what we believe? It's, it's very political these days. Like, it's very hard to be like me. I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter who, except on all COVID issues, DeSantis is 100% right. You know, it's very hard to be that kind of person. And I just want to touch on two things. Tracy made the point that people who spoke out paid a price. I think that's why some of us are sore. That's why I'm sore. Um, but um, I know that I'm going to be vindicated. And to John's point about trust, I mean, it's over. I mean, you're right, John, but it's over. If there is a pandemic tomorrow, this country is going to rip in half. And here's what's going to happen. There may even be calls to like, I don't even want to spec. I mean, I mean, maybe even the, some states may try to secede from the union. You know what I mean? It might get that crazy because we know every red state is going to put their middle finger up and it doesn't matter what the IFR is. They're just going to try to do as many things as possible. Every blue state is going to put all these restrictions on and you're going to get the movement we've gotten, which is everyone is leaving San Francisco and moving to Miami. So a lot of us, and this time maybe I'll go too, because I've had enough of this stupidity, um, but we'll get migration. We'll get total chaos. And it is possible that the next time around, actually, there were some things you should be doing, you know, like that might have been helpful. And we will miss doing that because we're so, as you say, there's no trust. I don't trust the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let Tracy comment. I do not trust the CDC at all. And I started this pandemic. I trust them everything. Like I never doubted them. Um, once upon a time, I disagreed with them about, you know, latent TB testing. We wrote a paper and then they changed their policy and I was pleased with them. Um, you can go read our paper in the American Journal of Medicine from Jenny Gill and I. Um, but I never distrusted them. 
Now, I don't trust them at all. I don't trust that their death count is accurate because it isn't. I don't trust that their advice is thoughtful. It isn't. Their MMWR, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even tear it up because I don't even want to touch it. It's so shitty. <laughs> it's such a bad journal. Okay, Tracy, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I do I I think that the the trust is key, right? But I want to push back on this mandate idea and the and what John was saying about the vaccines cuz I I I the childhood vaccines cuz I think that there are childhood vaccines that are very important and I don't want to give anyone else any other impression, but but most but, of But we we, we agree we agree with you on that. We agree totally. with you. On, yeah, okay. we both okay. agree so, with you. But yeah. I agree. So we all agree on that. That's what we agree on. But but the point is that there's really only like four or five European countries that mandate childhood vaccines for school and the rest of them, it's entirely optional. And those are like Eastern European countries, a few that mandate them like the United States does. And despite that, they have very high vaccination rates mm -hmm. in Europe. I know France has had some issues with lower vaccination rates, but in, 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 the Nor in the Nordic countries, they have very high vaccination rates. And so there is this question of like, you know, can you really have informed consent with mandates? And, you know, to what extent is it public, like the people in public health, to what extent is it their responsibility to explain to people the importance of the vaccines and to help them to make the right decision for themselves in the community and like what is the what is the downside of having a mandate and like you know is it going to result in people losing even more trust and sort of rebelling even more and so you know i think it's a really important discussion to have because i i think you know you know when you look at our list of like um vaccines that we even recommend it's much longer than europe i mean that's a different discussion but like um you know i i, I guess it's like it we 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 maybe can learn something from Europe and like this the informed consent you know approach and like giving people the information that they that that they need to make the right decision and that that more and more mandates are going to result probably in more backlash if people don't feel like they're being given the inf information that they can trust Tracy you're 100% right but these people have not learned the lesson they have not learned that lesson, Tracy. They still have not learned it. You and I wrote that that COVID vaccine mandate is not going to go well in California schools. They couldn't do it in LA. You know, they ultimately, they didn't have the courage to throw out, what was it, like 40 or 60,000 children from school yeah. who are mostly black and Latino uh, and not Asian and white because it's racist policy, by the way, because there's differential uptake by race and they're poorer kids and they need school. And you know what they don't need? The COVID vaccine because they already had COVID. What are we even I'm talking about? Throwing a child out of school and just destroying their life over a vaccine that you could debate whether they even need it? What are we, and it doesn't stop transmission anyway. What are we even talking about? And thankfully they, they didn't do it, but they haven't backed away from it. They're, they got a new bill where they're working on something else and they're going to come back to it. They have not learned exactly. this lesson. Yeah. They've not learned the lesson. And um, the last thing I want to say about the church, I read the David Zweig piece. And the thing about the church that blows me away is, I think you have to acknowledge one thing that, and and I'm guilty of this too. I have an MPH from Johns Hopkins. I'm a public health person and I am not a very devout person, you know? And when I put my science hat on, I am not, you know, I'm a very scientist hat, you know? And that science hat is not a religion hat, okay? Let's be honest. So public health people, generally, I don't think, think much of religion. It's just the nature of the business. They had policies in this county that the museum was open, but the church was closed. You and cannot, the and the liquor yeah. store is open, but the, yeah. you can, you cannot <laughs> in this, in, in this country, you cannot treat a church worse than a museum. You know, what are we even talking about? This is a country that one of the foundational values is people are free to have religious worship and you cannot interfere with that religious. That's a foundational constitutional value. And this, 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 this district has stricter policies on the church than on the museum. Why? Because we like museums, the people in the, and, and that to me, it just blows me away. The public health people are so nakedly about what they like, their preferences. You can buy, soon it'll be like, you can buy red wine, but you can't buy Bud Light. You know what I mean? It's really like you can you can listen to the opera but you but rock concerts are closed like we cannot live in a world where it's just my preferences and that's what public health is that's why that zweig piece hit so hard the policies were absurd it was so cruel they oh and then they illegally not illegally i don't know if that's true but they 
put them under cellular surveillance so that if too many cell phones gathered in the church, they would know to issue fines. You're using cellular surveillance on people who are trying to find God? What is wrong with you? That's such an abuse of power. To John's point, like if you use the police state and you beat a man for not wearing a mask, what what this is not acceptable in a free society. I'm sorry. This is like you're you're not that is not no Ugh, last thing I'd say. When I went to public health, I learned that in public health crises, when you want people to do the right thing, you make the right thing so desirable and easy and fluid that they do the right thing. And just you just, you know, like, hey, listen, guys, of course, the bar is open, but we're going to open this tent out here, have free drinks, have a party in this open air area. You can go to the bar if you want. I'm not going to close it. But if you want some free drinks, enjoy. They're going to come out of the bar, you know, so public health is to entice you. It's to treat you with respect and to build, you know, to strengthen you, to give you resources. It's not to get the cops to put you in cuffs. You know, what, what are we doing? And, and this church stuff is really disappointing. All right. Tracy, you want to comment? Then no, I mean, okay. I, I mean, I agree with you that it was very much religious discrimination and, and um, it was like, it, it was very anti-American actually. And I'm yeah. not religious either. And I got involved in it because, you know, it was like, it was, it was wrong. It was wrong to focus specifically on this church. And then, you know, it, it was also like, like you said, these public health officials, like, telling these people like you're telling like a 65 year old man or whatever like no you're not allowed to go to church why i don't know based on i don't know a model or or like um you know i i you're you're grabbing things out of thin air and telling people how to lead their lives and taking away that's something that's so important to them for like months on end and then it's not it's not rational because you're not you know treating church like other places so i i i completely agree with you um and i I, I just can't, I mean, this, the school that I was a medical advisor for was very similar to this church because like we opened as a daycare so that we could open as a school full time. Like that's how we officially got to open. And then I advised very early on that they'd be allowed to like play with athletic equipment and play sports and then unmask like very early. And like, if we had had like the CCP style, like, you know, spies, you know, watching us, I mean, then our diocese could have ended up with like millions of dollars in fines too. And for what, for being right. Um, and so, <laughs> you and, know, I, and... I hope we learn lessons from, yeah. from that, that maybe we shouldn't be telling people how to lead their lives for months and months on end without having data that the you know that the benefits outweigh the harms we certainly never had data like that and and not only do you you tell them how to live the life from a tradition that goes back a thousand years for your tradition that goes back 10 seconds and you got no data to support it i mean that is really what it happened okay john yeah yeah just finally i mean it just goes to that it just goes to that minimally uh, disruptive approach i mean um, the, the, the mandating of masks, the mandating of COVID vaccines, um, these were all reasonable hypotheses to, to improve healthcare and, and to improve our response. It was, but, but the thing that, the thing that we do in medicine is that we, we do things. And, and then if we see that it's not really working, we change. And so when, when it became obvious that COVID vaccines didn't stop transmission. I don't understand why public health wouldn't have just got up there and said, I would have said, look, this was this was our theory to improve things, but now it's not. And so we're changing the mandate. And and we tell patients this all the time. Same with a mess. They could have just said, we really wanted to stop transmission, but it's obvious that it didn't. And now we're, we're you can wear a mask if you want. And then trust would have been built up. And we wouldn't have a decline in vaccines that actually work for children, and we wouldn't have these off-target effects. And so, I don't know. I just, I could be wrong, but it just seems like a more humble, uh, uh, transparent, honest approach would have been better. All right. That's really well said. Okay, we're all going to do one closing thought, then we're done. Okay. I'm going to take the moderator purview and go first. Then we're going to hear go to Tracy, and then we'll go John to close us out. Okay. My closing thought. I left out a part about my randomized trial that I would just come to real quick about exercise, which is the reason I mentioned the baseline exercise and the fact that I'll randomize you to like 20% more and 50% more is that I want my trial to be so big 
that I can actually pre-specify interaction statistics. So like maybe if you do five hours a day, you should go to 20% more. But if you go 10 hours a day already, not 10 hours, 10 hours a week already, then it actually is deleterious. So we could actually look at that. So my study is basically a trial of advice and it has the power to actually give different results for people based on their different baseline. And the last thing I'd say is, I think every, all of this is advice. Like people are doing this study about elite athletes because they want to advise like a healthy person, don't do too much or you should do too little, knowing that they're not, not good. So I think like the, the, the commodity is what should you advise people? Okay, and then the last thing on the COVID policy, my closing thought is, I think you both, I mean, I, I really do agree with you profoundly, John, and I agree with Tracy profoundly on these issues. And I think they have not learned anything. And I think it's just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. And here's my, the one thing that I know that they haven't learned. We have had zero debates at my university on any of these issues. Zero debates at the university that I can think of. Zero Zoom town hall debates about people cannot hold the hand of their father when the father dies. Zero debates on masking kids. Even though the Atlantic is talking about people arguing on Twitter, zero debates at the university on masking kids. Zero debates on our own vaccine mandates. We had a vaccine mandate. We fired some people. Aaron Caretti is one from UC Irvine. He's fired. Um, we had a booster mandate. We fired a few more people, I think. So I hear. We have a third you know, thing where they, didn't, they finally got tired of firing people because now there's no one working anymore. It's hard to find a doctor in this town because we fired everybody. Uh, no debates, no debate, no like we're going to ask some folks in ID. We have, we have roundtables on, on COVID. They're just all with people who disagree with us and who all have the same view. That's acceptable, the Fauci view, but nobody is allowed to debate. There's no debates on masking policy. Even today, there's no debates on mandatory hospital. We've had no debates. Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, they have debates in the law school. There, there's a heckler, but they're not debating the COVID policy. They won't even have that debate. And so to me... What has happened? This is the academy. You had an un- you're doing policies you've never done in human history, and you will not de- debate at Harvard or Stanford or Yale or UCSF or UC Irvine. You're not going to debate zero debates, zero randomized trials of masking, and zero debates. And that tells you they have not learned anything. Universities are, I think, they're so they can go they can go like Silicon Valley Bank. They can crumble because if a university won't debate difficult ideas, it ceases to have value in society. This podcast has more value than these universities. And Joe Rogan podcast is already having more cultural value because he's going to actually debate, even if he's an imperfect debater and imperfect in many ways. So universities are going to go bankrupt like this. And I really worry that we are so vulnerable. I wrote that thing about democracy. Everyone was mad at me about that, that these kinds of decisions actually do undermine democracy. But I really think they do. All right. Those are my closing thoughts. John, and then Tracy, or Tracy, then John, Tracy, then John, and then we out. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I think that I want to say that the, the truth will always come out. And I think we've seen that a little bit already. And one of the ways that we saw that was um, that now, you know, California is not able to mandate this vaccine. A lot of people are saying it doesn't stop transmission. And I was asked to write an editorial in the LA Times and but people are sort of covering up what we initially knew which is which is really problematic um but that i think that people will be able to sort of like like i mentioned in my article you know we actually never had evidence from the beginning that the vaccines would stop transmission and so i think that eventually we're going to come around to learn all the everything is going to come out at some point and that you know the people who are covering it up will end up looking bad but it gets back to debate actually that um you know it's not just the universities because jay and i were just talking about this actually how like when we're on the public health integrity committee like you know that one of the things that we look forward to doing is debating and with each other and that's what we're doing on the show and that's you know we haven't seen any of that from the CDC. We haven't seen any of it in the media. It's not just the universities, it's our entire culture. Um, but Europe has been debating all along. Um, so the last thing I want to say is I want to say happy birthday to my mom because she's listening. <laughs> happy birthday, Tracy. That's a beautiful, that's a nice way to end. My closing is 11 words. Those who cannot remember the past 
are condemned to repeat it. Jorge Santayana. So we need to study the history and we need to learn from it and we need to be humble about what we got right and what we got wrong. Thank you all for doing this. Great episode.